group, and so we're still going to have uh, stuff going on. But it's fitting for our final uh, midweek worship service that we're having a Q&A. And so we're hoping you guys bring the, you know, the heat today when it comes to these questions, um, and, and we'll be ready for them. And so um, as, as David uh, mentioned in the prayer, one of our pastors, Pastor John Weigel, um, he's on a mission in East Asia right now. We won't specify where, but he's there. They just arrived today. Um, so uh, keep him in prayer. But yeah, it's awesome that he's over there representing our king. Um, and then Pastor Brian was going to be here, but he got sick. And so it's myself, it's Pastor Josh, and then one of our elder interns, Ronnie Gonzalez. Um, and most of you know Ronnie, but if, if you're not familiar with all that he does here, he's an elder intern. He uh, runs the men's ministry, um, so all the men definitely look up to him, and then um, he co-leads the children's ministry with another elder intern, uh, Anthony Pence, and so, um, and you're at the Southern, uh, Southern Baptist Theological Seminary as a student right now as well, uh, right? Yes, currently, yes. Okay, so yeah, Ronnie's going to know his stuff, so bring him your hardest questions. Um, that being said, Pastor Josh, would you like to open us in prayer? Yes. Heavenly Father, we bless your name. We thank you for loving us, Lord, and for having your Son be our righteousness, uh, Lord, our death, our resurrection, our wisdom. Um, Lord, he is everything that we need to be reconciled to you, Lord, so that we may be transformed into people who love you and love others, Lord, um, like we are supposed to. And so, Lord, um, I pray that that would be the end goal of tonight, Lord, is to know you better so that we may love you better. Or to have a sanctified more so that we may love others the way that we are supposed to. That we may govern and rule in this world and have dominion over it as you have commanded us to, Lord. But under your authority and uh, with you, Lord, being our uh, ultimate role model, Lord. For we were fashioned in your image. You created us to be like you, Lord. And uh, salvation is about restoring that. And so we thank you again for it. Uh, or may we just uh, use wisdom and discernment in the way that we answer Lord, to best help our congregation and those listening online to understand your word and to understand what it means to live in light of it. Um, Lord, we pray that uh, those that uh, questions that may be brought in regards to unsaved friends or family and questions they may have, Lord, we pray that we would uh, give our people a good reason uh, for the hope that is in, uh, within them and that they may be able, be able to, um, Lord, just give a, an excellent apologetic or a reason for why we believe what we believe so that uh, people understand that this is not, uh, Christianity is not a gut feeling, but it is something that is based in historical reality, um, Lord, that your character is trustworthy as it has been proven over and over again through human history and has been validated especially through the coming of Christ, his uh, death and his resurrection. And so, Lord, we anticipate his return. And so until then, God, help us to live a godly life which is the point of even these discussions. It's just to help us to stay on course until Christ comes again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, so the way it'll work is uh, John has everything set up back there to where if you have a question, you just go up to that microphone and because uh, we are streaming this, and so your question will be uh, streamed as well. And so, um, yeah, just as you want to ask a question, you just go line up back there and... Uh, that's how we'll take it. And then some people will post their questions online as well, and we'll periodically check those too. So who's first? All right, we got Luke. Okay, uh, my question is, what are some ways or things we can do to help combat uh, depression in a biblical way? Good question. Either of you guys want to take it first? I'm going to think for just a second. 
Um, we're just spouting off answers. Um, <laughs> well, the, 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 there's um, that, that's a very broad category, first of all. Um, and there's a lot of reasons why uh, people may become depressed. Um, so I think in order to combat it, I think first, the first thing you have to recognize is, is uh, I guess, the root cause of what is, where it's stemming from. Um, sometimes people, because we are, uh, we are body, soul, and spirit, and we're not just one-dimensional beings, uh, there could be a number of reasons. And so the first part, you know, addressing it is one thing, but the first part is to identify the source of it. Sometimes uh, not taking care of ourselves physically uh, is one reason that we feel discouraged. Not be, I don't mean because of low body image. I mean because we, take care of, we don't take care of ourselves, and we can feel sluggish. We can feel down and out because we have not exercised or because we've been overloading on carbs or not doing, getting enough sunshine or getting out. You know, Sometimes we live like vampires, and we can wonder why we feel so depressed, and it's because we're not physically taking care of ourselves and that can affect the mind. Um, the other thing I would, uh, so that could be one reason in assessing it, and then there's different protocols for addressing those kinds of things, eating better, exercising, and things like that, going for walks, enjoying God's creation, and, and finding re- reasons to celebrate instead of you know, turning inward you know, for whatever reason. But uh, the other would be trying to assess if depression is coming about because of sin, uh, because there are things that we can do that grieve our heart that cause us to feel guilty, that cause us to, to feel the angst of sin and the bitterness of it. While it's pleasurable going down, it ends up being bitter to our stomach. Um, and so um, I found in my life that there are times when I feel really discouraged, and it's because of that reason as well. And so the, the protocol for that would be to repent and to have renewed faith in, in the gospel and to continue walking with God. And then there's more protocol besides that, but that's the short of the answer. And then sometimes there's, there's a combination of things going on back and forth um, uh, of the two intertwining, and they kind of feed off of each other. Um, so th- th- I know that's not a, um, a concise answer, but that's because the question is more broad. Um, several things I would recommend would, would be finding out which, which of those issues is causing the depression. Okay? Um, sometimes it's the way that we've mentally trained ourselves, too, to think. Um, we haven't trained ourselves to put off... Uh, depressed thinking and we haven't trained ourselves in rejoicing. So one of the things I recommend is getting around God's people. Um, I I believe uh, engaging in worship with the body, not just by ourselves, but in order to hear joyful singing and to practice that uh, so that we are not just focusing on not being depressed, but we're exercising joy with God's people. And to hear joyful people sung and being around joyful people is one of the ways that helps that. Also, focusing on the gospel and remembering that um, that Christ is coming to remove uh, our tendency to wander into those things or to be affected by those things. Um, that's just the tip of the iceberg, brother. There's, there's so many other things that we can look at. Um, you know, there are particular scriptures to focus on, like Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, to talk about the downcast soul and finding our hope and joy and salvation in the Lord. Um, I would also point people to Philippians um, the entire book, uh, a huge theme that runs throughout it is joy, and we see that expressed in the life of the apostle who is in prison, who you'd think would be depressed, but nevertheless he's rejoicing because he's focused on not the circumstance, but the activity of God around him. And so I would say that's another way that you can help combat depression and discouragement 
is to focus on what God is doing rather than turning inward and having everything be about our little realm. Does that make sense? So focusing on the activity of God to help pull us out of our um, self-centered tendency of, and way of tendency of to think of things. But um, anyway, that's just barely scratching the tip of the iceberg. Those are just a few general suggestions. Yeah, if I could add to that, because all that was an excellent answer. Um, there's whole books written on this, and I'm not talking about from like the secular standpoint. I'm talking about from the biblical counseling standpoint, entire books dedicated to the subject. And so um, what I would reiterate, and really all I'm doing is saying the same thing Josh said, but just maybe a, a tad bit differently, right? Um, you want to observe yourself. Observe yourself very carefully. So, for example, because as Pastor Josh said, it might be physical, right? It might be a physical thing. And, and when I say that, I'm not talking about you have a chemical imbalance in your brain. That's by no means been proven. Um, so that's the prevailing theory. And there have been all sorts of tests that have shown that the placebo actually works as good as, as Prozac. All that to say, though, it could be that there's a medication that you're on that leads to those thoughts, or there could be a medication that your body needs that you've gone off of. And so now it's throwing you physically out of equilibrium and you're not getting sleep, you're not getting circulation and all that kind of stuff. That could be causing it. And so what you want to do is you want to track that. You want to look at yourself and say, hey, I've been feeling this way predominantly since this date. And then you start looking for external factors. Are there things that I did or didn't do starting on that date that I've continued that could be related to this? And then you test it, right? You go and test it, change the circumstance and see if it goes away. If so, then you, you know it's because of a physiological thing that you've done to your body. Now, if it's a spiritual thing, which, um, and this is just my own observations, counseling depressed people and helping depressed people 100% of the time, unless it's a medical thing like we're just talking about, like you've gone off a medication or gone on a medication, 100% um, of the time it's some outward circumstance. Uh, my girlfriend broke up with me or I got a really bad score on my math test or, you know, I lost my job or our hours are being cut or whatever. It's always some sort of circumstance in their life and then all of a sudden people get depressed. Well, in that case, it's, it's obviously not medical because this is being caused by the way you're reacting to circumstances in your life. And so ultimately it ends up stemming from a grumbling spirit at that point, thinking that um, I don't deserve this. If I were God, I would never let this happen to me. You know, rather than trusting the Lord day by day, um, you know, and his grace being enough for you each day. So um, that's what I would look to for that. And then finally, sometimes... There's just been a chronic level of sin and bad decisions that have put somebody in such a hole that they feel hopeless. And really the only way out is to backtrack and go back the way you came. Um, so the way that we would explain it in biblical counseling is there was a circumstance that came to your life. And there's a biblical response and a sinful response. And you chose a sinful response, right? And so then that creates another problem called a complicating problem. And when it comes to that problem, you could repent and go back to that original problem and start trying to fix that. Or you could now respond to the second problem also with the sinful response, which then leads to another complicating problem. And it goes on and on and on as you keep digging yourself down the hole. And before long, you're at the bottom of a whirlpool and you don't know how to get back. Well, the way you get back is go back to the previous complicating problem, that previous sinful response, and repent of it. And to the best that you can, fix that. Then go back to the one before that. It takes time, but eventually you get out of the hole. 
And so that's really the only thing I could add to it. Uh, what Steve was doing is studying yourself. Journaling helps that, which uh, you, you record the times when you're depressed and maybe something that preceded it, and you might find that certain things trigger it, which is basically what he's getting at. And it's helpful to find a scripture that says this is how I'm supposed to respond to those things, but here's how I'm really responding. Yeah. And you start keeping track of how you obey or disobey God in light of that circumstance. And really, when you, when you look at your, your life, your life is a sum total of every experience that you've ever had in this world and how you've obeyed or disobeyed God. And you've either trained yourself in righteousness or trained yourself in unrighteousness. And uh, there are a lot of times when depressed people, their default is to go into sulk mode or they don't have a proper understanding of how life operates in this fallen world. And so they set themselves up for high expectations and, and the world under delivers and they train themselves I deserve more, and the world doesn't bring it, and so self-pity comes in. That's where a lot of depression comes in. And so you start realizing, oh, I have a biblical unview, and every time anything bad happens, this is my default mode is self-pity or retreat or inward focus or withdrawal, all these things that depression just continues to feed off or it encourages it. So um, knowing yourself is huge in, in journaling. Um, and then uh, finding people and being around people that have worked through that and are no longer dealing with that on a regular basis, even though they may still, it still happens every, every once in a while, you know? Perfect. Yeah. And, and as personal testimony, when I've been depressed, like I call them like onesies and twosies, where I'm like depressed for a day or two, it's usually when I'm not getting sleep yeah. um, is what I found. Now, when I find myself in like a period of depression, 100% of the time it's been sin on my part. Um, not always like something that I did, but the way I've been thinking. Usually it's a grumbling spirit, a discontent spirit. And so one diagnostic tool that could help you really get to the bottom of it, if that's what's going on, is ask yourself these questions. Ask yourself, what am I getting that I'm not wanting, right? And then you really write that down like, hey, I'm getting this. Maybe it's like from your spouse, your, you know, she's you know, talking back, or, or maybe it's your job, you know, something, some circumstance, you're getting something you don't want, or the other side of it, what am I wanting that I'm not getting? What is it that I expect that I should have in my life, but I'm not getting it? And then you really start to think, wow, because I'm not getting what I want, and because I'm getting things I don't want, now all of a sudden I feel in the dumps and don't care if I live or die, you know, and stuff like that, and I've been there, right? And the way out is asking those questions and then realizing just how narcissistic we are being when we're going to let ourselves get that way because things aren't going the way that we wish they would go. Again, there's a lot of Psalms and stuff like that that help us work through um, pretty much the circumstances of life that aren't fun. Yeah. And this is the kind of question that might be worth having a whole Q&A on. Yeah. Um, it really is. And there's, more things keep popping up. And um, I would say don't, pigeon, don't pigeonhole yourself into, like, this is just my personality. And this is just how I am. This is my disposition. If you do that, then, then you have no reason to change because it's how you are. I have to tell you that you are made in the image of God. Our God is not a depressed God, is he? He's a joyful God who takes delight in himself above all. And any depression that we experience is either a result of fall, uh, of the fall in some way, whether our own faults or because our bodies are messed up or because of sin. And so there is transformation that is available from God. And Christ died and rose again that we would never be that discouraged or broken again. And so ultimate redemption is coming, but there is momentary relief from that as we conform to the image of God. But don't ever try to say, well, this is just my personality. This is just how I am, because you'll be a victim to that your whole life as long as you maintain that uh, mentality. Ronnie, you got anything? 
That was great. No, I'm, I'm just here to field questions on the maybe like 90s cartoons, Power Rangers, <laughs> Ninja Turtles, stuff like that. So, no, that was brilliant. Thank you. And let me just add one small little thing based on what Pastor Josh just said. You know, people want to identify themselves based on these labels, but we don't do that with anything else, right? People will say, I'm bipolar, or I am depressed, or I am, but does anybody say, I am cancer? I am a heart attack? Somehow, we've let the therapeutic world out there reduce your existence and identity down to these, which isn't even something the medical industry does with real illnesses. So just keep that in mind. You are not the way you feel. You're made in the image of God, and we're redeemed, and we're called to higher things. Okay. And you aren't alone. And you're not alone. (laughs) I I went through a year-long depression in 2011, so I understand what it's like to feel like that. So you have pastors that sympathize and empathize. You have brothers and sisters in the church that have been through it and have gotten out of it. And so you need each other. You will never be the whole Christian that God intended you to be apart from the body of Christ. Do you understand that? Mm. You only grow into maturity because of this body of Christ, because the Lord dwells in us, gives us gifts for your maturity. And so to isolate yourself when you're depressed, all you, all you do is feed into that more, and you, and you complicate the problem further. And that's what a lot of depressed people do. They isolate themselves away from the church. That is what you need more than anything, because that is where God dwells, gifting people to love you and to bless you and to help you out of that. So don't, don't do your default mode and go into retreat when uh, you feel depressed. You're, you're only making it worse. We could go on. Yeah. <laughs> All right. As Pastor Josh said, Thank this could be the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, it really could. It really could. Hopefully that's helpful. All right, David. All right. So I had a couple uh, this evening that are directed at the pastors, but only so far two of you here, but I think it can still apply. So We're I think Josh kind of answered this recently in a sermon on Sunday when he gave an example about when he first was called to preach. But when did um, each of you know you wanted to become a pastor and preach the word? And during that journey, was there any point where you tried to ignore that calling or run from it? Want me to go? Do you feel called to ministry? Pastoring? You're an elder intern and you're going to seminary, but don't know if it's... Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a question I've definitely, um, I've definitely uh, struggled with, for sure. It's, um, you know, uh, as, a, as a new convert or as a, uh, someone that was returning back into the fold just a few years ago, as a kid, I went to church. That's why I mentioned that. Like, growing up, I went to, to church and, and uh, was baptized as a kid. I, I don't know if I fully comprehended it, which is why, again, I, I was baptized as an adult. But, um, but with that, I had this tremendous, like probably many of you, had this tremendous, like, just insatiable appetite for the Word of God. Like, just this, uh, this renewed, like, just vigor and just uh, uh, energy I wanted to... I couldn't get enough of the Word of God, and uh, uh, sharing with people my, my faith, right? uh, believers and non-believers, any conversations I could have, anyone who would uh, bother to, to, to hear me out, right? And so there was definitely moments where I've felt that calling more strongly, um, and then there's, but there's also, I guess, coming to the realization where, like, I think all of us are called to, to be, we're, we're all called to, to be those uh, missionaries uh, as it is in, in our lives, right, in the lives of others and, and wherever God has placed us. We're supposed to bloom wherever we're planted. And so I think 
do I feel I'm called to ministry? Yes, I feel I'm called to ministry in some form, um, whether that's pastoral in the long run. I leave that to God, really. Uh, I just, for, for my uh, personal uh, sake, I, I just, again, continue to, to learn or try to seek to learn uh, as much as I can about the Word of God and, and apply it in my own life, help others to do the same. Um, there is, I think, another side of the coin as well where it's the, the, uh, the recognition on others' behalf that you have this special calling. And um, I think that is, that, that's, a, that's not something you can uh, just, that's the, the part of it you can't fabricate, right? That's the part of which you can't be fooled of. And uh, it's, it's something that others will see in you or they won't. And I think uh, just, it's a, it's a process. Mm. Yeah, for, for me, and, and let, let me, I guess, baptize it with this first. Um, you have some people who act like if it's not like Moses, then it's not from God. Meaning, like, you have to be the reluctant prophet, the one running from it, until God finally, like, breaks your arms and forces you to be a pastor against your will. And, and I don't think that's the way it normally is. You know, First Timothy um, chapter 3 says, if you have this desire, it's a noble desire. This is something we're encouraged to have if, if it's something that, that we feel the Lord's calling us to do. And so for me, um, I became a Christian at 17 years old, and within a couple months, I knew I wanted to be a pastor. Kind of like what Ronnie said, I had an insatiable, insatiable desire and hunger for the Word of God. I could not put it down until I got to Leviticus. But then I realized I could just go to Matthew. Um, and so I kept at it. I was like keeping my preacher up all night with all those questions, like where did Cain get his wife? I just wanted to know. And I couldn't stop talking to others about it to where I think my dad threatened to kick me out of the house because I was talking about it so much. And so I knew at that point, and I started talking to my preacher like, hey, what do I have to do to become a pastor? Now, the thing that made it to where I didn't pursue it right away is it was a church of Christ that I got saved in. And, you know, they're off on some of their theology. And within about a year, I realized that. And, of course, but I did buy into some of their, their junk that all the other churches are jacked up too, even more jacked up. So pretty much I thought to myself, well, I'm not going to go to any Bible college and get a jacked up education. And so I went to regular college and the only thing I liked was history. And that kind of like sealed my fate for a while. If you get a history degree, there's only one job you could do and that's teach. And so I had to become a public school teacher. But in that time, my desire never died to be a pastor. So you have to ask yourself, even in that situation, was I doing things that were kind of pastoral? Well, yes, I was studying the word. I was constantly finding avenues to teach it, whether it was in my church or even having a Bible study in my house or a running Christian club at the school I was at. Um, when friends had uh, marriage issues, I became the unofficial marriage counselor trying to help them. I mean, it was just all I didn't realize at the time that I was functioning as a pastor, but I was. Um, in some respect. And then even when um, I was at Bonnie's parents' house, you know, I thought I was just there playing video games with uh, her brothers. But a lot of times I turned it into a conversation about God. And then we'd go toilet paper houses. I wasn't a good role model. But then we'd come back and talk more about God. And so the thing is, it was there. Um, and then later I realized I'm wasting my life is what I felt as a teacher. 
And I don't mean that to anybody else who's a teacher. That's just how I felt. And so at that point, I decided that, you know what, I just need to go head on into this. So I enrolled at Liberty uh, Seminary, and my plan was to become a full-time Army chaplain and, you know, jump out of the plane, an Army plane holding a Bible, having a parachute, and then saying, repent, as I'm slowly descending to the earth. Um, And uh, that was my plan. But God had different plans, those local church plans, and I'm very thankful for that. Thank you for asking that question, brother. Uh, that's this is probably one of my favorite questions anybody has ever asked. Not because we get to talk about ourselves, but it's just amazing to ponder back and think about the grace of God. Um, I was a senior in high school when I had uh, altered my life course for most of my junior and high school years. I wanted to go to college to be a heart surgeon, and uh, so I had to apply to several uh, schools. The school I wanted to go to, because I lived in San Diego at that time, was uh, University of California, San Diego. And my senior year, I got accepted to it. And uh, I, I remember uh, m- my parents had been through a nasty divorce uh, prior to the, all of that. And, and this went on through my ninth, 10th, 11th, and 12th grade year. It was a long divorce, messy and ugly and constant bickering and fighting and not liking either of my parents during that time. And during all that time, my church loved on me. They cared for me. I had... Previously, uh, it, it, it was ugly. My, my mom, uh, I love her. I don't know that she's a believer, but she ended up having an affair in the church and one of the, with one of the deacons, and she left the church. This was after my parents were even split up, and um, nevertheless, my church never stopped loving me. They kept helping us go to summer camp, the camp that we take our kids to now for winter camp, and they just loved on me, my brother, and even the, the, the lady whose husband was unfaithful to her, the church uh, organist never gave me and my brother the stink eye. And we were there. And we could have had a, even though we weren't the adulterers, we could have had a scarlet adulterer's child label put on us, like the scarlet, you know, uh, scarlet A. And um, anyway, because of that, I noticed how much God's church loved us. And, and I, had, I had always cared about my friends getting saved and witness to my family. But during my senior year, when I got that letter that... Um, that uh, said I got accepted to UCSD, I was happy. But in that moment, anxiety just came all over me. I began to panic and literally have an anxiety attack in my house. And um, I'm a senior in high school. You don't, you don't really have much. I guess you do have a lot to be anxious about. But I started pacing around the house, and I, I, I remember feeling lost in my own house. And randomly, and... Uh, I don't want to say this was God putting the thought in my head, it just, but somehow the thought of going to Bible college to become a pastor came into my head. And the anxiety just went away, like instantly just left my body. And I'm like, oh, that would be great. I'm like, wait a minute. No, no. What are you talking about? You, you've committed your life to wanting to be a doctor. Your girlfriend that you've been dating, you told her you'd buy a Porsche when you guys got married. You've made commitments. You got to keep your word. Jenny was my girlfriend at the time and my wife now. And, uh, panic came over me oh my gosh and then bible college entered my mind and the anxiety went away and i was more of a mystical christian then um and so i thought maybe this is god telling me he wants me to go to bible college but the thought of going to bible college to and and i i'll tell you this i i I never i was never much of a leader i was 117 pounds when i graduated high school I wasn't, the, even though I played sports, I wasn't a jock. I was a geek. I was a nerd, skinny, scrawny. I got bullied. So I was never a leader in the sense that you would, you would think. 
And so being a pastor was probably contrary to anything that I, I would have ever wanted to do. Um, I didn't enjoy speaking in front of people uh, in public settings. I didn't just naturally go out and lead people. Uh, history w- was one of my hardest subjects. So was geography. Uh, so were the social studies. So were languages. Even though I got A's in them, they d- it did not come easy. It was a struggle. I like math and science and, and all that kind of stuff. And so going off to Bible college to learn about history and learn about languages and learn about people was contrary to the way my mind naturally gravitated towards but nevertheless, I, I wanted to do this. And so I committed my life to go to Bible college. I never had any doubts, and I never second-guessed it after that point. I'll tell you what, though. As soon as I made that commitment, my best friend turned on me. My mom said a few choice words to me, as did my best friend. Uh, my family ganged up on me. Nobody wanted me to do this. The only people that were supportive was my church. And so I remember in my senior year, senior year in high school, in my English class, writing a letter where they were going to take one of those time capsules and bury it. And I remember writing a letter to myself. Dear Josh, whenever they dig us up, you're going to look back and you're going to remember how much, you know, how much opposition you had towards this. This is the general idea of the letter. And just know that you got to stick with this and you'll be glad that you did. Kind of, and I don't know whatever happened to that letter, but uh, it was just a reminder to myself that I'm going to go on and, and one day I'm going to look back and I do now. And I, that advice that I gave to myself and reminders stuck true, but uh, never had any doubt whatsoever. I went to not the best Bible college. I didn't get receive the best theological training. I never went to seminary, but nevertheless, I graduated after five years, uh, one year off. Um, but this is how confident I was that God wanted me in ministry. I just showed up to the Bible college that, that I wanted to go to and hoped that I would get some loans or find a place to stay. I just showed up uh, with no notice whatsoever. Um, Finished my first year. That second year, I stayed home and didn't go off to school. The third year, I I basically did the same thing. Just drove out to Springfield, Missouri, and said, here I am to go to school. (laughs) And uh, then the next year, my wife and I got married, um, and we didn't have an apartment. We didn't have jobs because we'd we'd just taken the summer off. We uh, we didn't know. So we we didn't have a car, and we got married, and this is how confident we were. God wants us in ministry. So we're going to go out there with no home to live in, no car, no jobs, and we're going to trust that God's going to provide for us because this is what he wants us to do. That's how confident we were. I wouldn't say that was wise. Um, I think that's a little foolish, but that's how confident we were as young people with very little responsibility. And so we went out, and within a week we had a place to live. As we were walking home from the grocery store one day, my friend drove by and said, what are you guys walking for? And we're like, we just got married. We don't have a car. You want to buy this one for 400 bucks? Done deal. Right? And then, uh, and then uh, not too long after that, we got jobs. Like God literally just provided, provided, provided. So my whole life, uh, because of the Lord's provision, even through my foolishness, he has always made sure that, uh, that we just kept moving forward in ministry. Um, there's never been a time when I've doubted it. Um, I don't think I have the natural gift of leadership where, like, I want to be a f- football captain, coach, or, uh, you know, quarterback. I, out in the world, I don't lead anything. <laughs> this is the only place where I lead. So um, I believe that's a spiritual gift that God has gifted me with. Um, and so uh, along with teaching, I, I've always done well in teaching. Uh, even in high school, whenever people struggle with things, I always found that I had the ability to explain complex things and make them easy for people whether it be, you know, physics or chemistry or maths or whatever. And so um, anyway, that was one way I excelled 
and uh, being able to communicate in, in a way that took complicated things and help people understand them. Um, and I still do that today, but never had a doubt, um, never felt like quitting pastoring. In fact, we do it for free now, basically. And uh, we, and this isn't to brag or make anybody feel guilty, but on a given week, we pro- I probably put in 25 hours a week of pastoring on top of my full-time job. Like, it's, I'm not addicted to it. I don't think it's my identity. I can lay it down if I had to, but it's, it's what I desire to do, you know, to lead God's people to greater, greater things for the Lord's glory. Good question. Very good question. All right, so my question is, uh, since Satan is not omnipresent, does Satan actually have direct influences in our lives today, or is it all simply our own sin nature that influences us to sin? You want to take this one, Ronnie? Um, sure. So I, I'm trying to think right now as far as uh, scripturally, but um, I would say both and. I don't think it's a like a... It doesn't. It's not one or the other. I think it's going to be both. Although I'm definitely more inclined to say it's it's going to be uh, a lot of it is going to end up boiling down to our own sinful desires, our own motivations, or if our if our will is not aligned with the will of God in particular. If we aren't, I mean, if we're just speaking generally of, of people in general, unregenerate people, of course, uh, their propensity is to sin because that is according to their to their sinful disposition, their sinful nature. Um, now, even as regenerate, as, as people that are uh, redeemed, um, we have that tendency. Those, while the the power, the sin doesn't hold the power over us, it's still obviously still present in our lives in, in different aspects because we, we're uh, you know we're fallen image bearers of God, uh, and so you were right in pointing out that Satan is not omni, um, omnipotent or not omnipresent, I think it was. He's not everywhere. He's also not omnipotent. He's not all-powerful. He's not God, not even close. Um, but are there certain things in which he has a uh, foothold in this world? Yes, because this world is, is fallen. This world has uh, is under his, his dominion, right? And so there are certain aspects of, of creation that have... Um, in their current state right now, not as they were created, but in their current state of decay and, and fallenness, um, do can and will influence us to to further sin. Sure, uh, while it's I don't think it's him necessarily that's tempting you in particular, or or me in particular. Uh, I mean, he has other fallen angels for that matter uh, that that can do that sort of thing. But but I think it is. It, as Christians, we are believers in the supernatural, right? We, we do believe in the resurrection of the body. We do believe that Christ resurrected from the grave. It would be, I think, foolhardy to also deny the, the supernatural uh, reality that exists on, uh, from the demonic, either oppression, demonic, uh, uh, just uh, temp- the temptation that comes that often um, is maybe disguised as something else, something that is more enticing, more attractive to us. That is, I think, uh, what would cause us, along with our own propensity to want to sin, uh, to, to go down that path. Yeah, that, that, that's a good answer. I mean, it's both and, right? Where, you know, there's the sin nature. A lot of, uh, you know, you have that passage from James chapter 1, you know, where, where sin comes from. It's a desire in our heart, right, that's conceived and all that. But at the same time, um, you know, we do know there are spiritual forces. And, you know, Satan himself entered Judas. Satan asked to sift Peter like wheat. Now, is Satan 
directly interview. We're small fries compared to Peter, you know, and so forth. But, you know, we know that, that Jesus speaks of Satan having a kingdom in a sense, not just, um, you know, having the whole world under his sway, but there's, there's a lot of fallen angels that follow him and there's plenty of them, right? And they could be um, watching us and, and observing our patterns and they could assist with the temptations. I think it was St. Jerome that said that, look, you know, if, if you're sitting there staring at, he, as he put it, a beautiful damsel, you know, the, the way they translated that, um, you know, an enemy can notice that. And it was like, ah, that's what this guy's watching. That's where he's weak. And so, yeah, it's our own desire, but then we give them, we give away um, what those things are so that they can increase the temptation and so forth. And one thing that, that I was thinking about this, right? I mean, these enemies, they're immortal. They've been around since the beginning. We've only been around for as long as we've lived. But if you think about like what advertisers have already been able to figure out how to do, like I could say... Um, I could say uh, fast food and without like it's completely involuntary. You picture golden arches. Why? Because McDonald's has spent billions of dollars in advertisement to make it to where involuntarily you picture the golden arches when somebody mentions fast food. Now, how are they able to get that in your head? Just by constant repetition and stuff like that. And the fact that the big tech companies, not trying to sound like a conspiracy theorist or anything, you guys know how I feel about conspiracy theories, but they got these algorithms to where it's like on Facebook, it brings up the stuff I want to watch. It brings up the things I want to buy. It's like, how, how do they know that? Well, it's because they're observing my patterns and stuff like that. If humans can do that and computers could do that, how much more an ancient foe that's smarter than us and has been in this business for a long time? So yes, it is our own heart, but believe me, we have enemies that it's in their interest for us to fall and we give them more than enough info so that they can make it harder for us. The only thing, um, while he isn't omnipresent, yeah, let me think about it. If, if we went hunting, we can set traps in any numerous, uh, any number of places, and we don't actually physically have to be present to have a fact, an effect at catching something, do we? Set a bear trap, because you, by design, set a trap. Second uh, Corinthians uh, chapter two, verse eleven. Um, Paul's addressing forgiveness and unforgiveness, and he talks about how he, uh, he forgave a particular uh, instance. He says, for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs, or we are not ignorant of his schemes. And so there's, uh, there's plenty of schemes out there, traps, designs that Satan has set so that we might fall into, and he's just scurrying around doing his thing, and doesn't even have to be there. So just to address that, but um, of course we do have our own lusts and our own pride and desires of the flesh that feed into uh, things, um, but those can, they can intertwine uh, with Satan's desires. And so anyway, just something to add, not a whole lot more. All right, Fernando. So um, in the book of Acts, there's different accounts of the Holy Spirit coming down to believers. In Acts chapter 8, Peter and John lay hands on some of the uh, Samaritans believers so that they could receive the Spirit. In Acts chapter 9, Paul, on his conversion, Paul waits for Ananias to lay hands on him to receive the Spirit. And then in Acts 19, Paul laid hands on some of the disciples that had only been baptized into John's baptism. 
and they receive the Spirit. Why is there a gap between the uh, conversion or the belief of some people and the Spirit coming down on them? They had to wait for someone to lay hands on them. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good question. I'm, I know what I think the answer is, um, but do either of you want to answer first? Um, I don't know if my answer is right because it's more observation than actually studying uh, the subject. Um, but there, uh, I would, my, my observation is this. There, we're in, there, you're in a transitional period from Old Testament to New Testament in which there were godly believers uh, that were saved but maybe had not heard of Christ and did not know he came. And so as they're preaching the gospel, uh, it seems to me that the laying on of hands to receive the Spirit was to help recognize that there is a transition taking place from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And uh, that's just an observation. I don't know if that's correct or not, but that just seems to be an initial reaction because uh, it, it doesn't seem to be operative now. Um, it, anytime now someone believes they're, they seem to be automatically indwelt with the Spirit. And there's no need for some sort of second blessing as many people think there is nowadays. But yeah, yeah, there's definitely, you can't justify a second blessing from that, which is what people want to do. Um, I, I think that Acts chapter 19 is the perfect example of what Pastor Josh is saying. The Acts chapter 9, I don't think, with Paul, I don't think it belongs in that. Because it's not that he's receiving the Holy Spirit, he's being filled with the Spirit. Um, and the scripture, if, if you just do a word study of being filled with the Spirit versus receiving the Spirit, they're different things. Filling is something that happens repeatedly in the life of a believer when, when the Spirit of God is going to do a specific act in us. And, and that's what's in play in Acts chapter 9 when, when Paul's converting. But I think fundamentally, most of these instances in Acts comes down to the fact of the person of Peter. Because, you know, we as Protestants try to get around it that Jesus said to you, I give the keys of the kingdom. We try every which way to say that's not what it's saying, but that is what it's saying. What it's not saying is it's not saying that God is now creating a pope out of Peter and that there's going to be this magical thing called apostolic succession. None of that's there. He's just saying the keys of the kingdom are given to Peter, specifically Peter. Now, what are keys meant to do? To open right? To open the door. Now, let me ask you this. What kinds of people are there in the world, especially in the book of Acts? You got Jews, you got Gentiles, and you got the Samaritans, which were in between, okay? And so when it came to Acts chapter 2 and the gospel was preached and the Holy Spirit fell on them and they did these signs and wonders and, and spoke in tongues, who was there? Peter. He was one who preached. In chapter 10 with Cornelius, when it was the Gentiles and Peter started preaching, and then they started speaking in tongues. Again, who was there? Peter. But Acts chapter 8, they hear the gospel. They even get baptized, but they didn't have the Holy Spirit. Who wasn't there? Peter. It was just Philip that was there. And so then Peter and John go, lay their hands, and then it happens. By that point, all the main people groups have now received the gospel. The door's been opened, and then Peter pretty much disappears off the pages of the scripture, and it transitions to Paul. So I think the way that Luke arranges it is meant to show all that. Now, Acts chapter 19 is where you get the very unique thing. And I think what Pastor Josh said is perfect about there being a transition. You had, like, in chapter 2, you had unbelieving Jews, right? Like, Jews who rejected Jesus, but now they accepted him. And then you got the Gentiles, 
who accept him and the Samaritans who accept him. The Jews in Acts chapter 19 were different in the sense that they were followers of John the Baptist. So they were people who were obedient to the call of God and did not reject the forerunner. Yet they didn't know that the one the Baptist had been pointing to had come. And so I think that's why, because of that transitional period, why also a special event of, of, you know, the Holy Spirit falling on them and them speaking in tongues happened specifically in their case because they were a unique group not represented by the other three groups, if that kind of makes sense. Um, But I I think that's the best way to take it. Um, Because again, when you read the rest of the scripture, you don't see anything about this the second baptism of the Holy Spirit that happens later. And again, Pentecostal folk try to use those unique events and acts apart from their context to try to support that. And I just don't think you can. Anything you want to add, brother? No, uh, just highlighting that with uh, what both Pastor Josh and Pastor Steve mentioned. That was really, to me, a a big um, eye-opener as... You know, as you read your Bible, as you read it, and, and for that matter, read it chronolo- chronologically, the, the New Testament, you do start to see that um, that which happened in Acts, which was the church in its infancy, it looks different. It starts to develop. It Those things that uh, were special case uh, because of that special case scenario, because of its that transition time, you start to see even then that's not normative. Uh, that sort of thing, the... the the spirit, that delay, that gap, if you will, of the spirit being um, uh, indwelling someone or, or filling someone, um, uh, not for the purpose of ministry, but like a, a, as after the regeneration or whatever, um, that you don't see a gap anymore after that. And I think that's an important thing that may get missed, but just keep that in mind. As you read the letters of Paul, you don't see that being an issue anymore. And on the other hand, the issue is an abuse of the idea that the spirit anoints you and, and you have to do it, it has to look a certain way. Even when Paul painstakingly points out that's that's the wrong way. It shouldn't look like that. And I'm speaking of like 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. It's almost like a special validation. Mm-hmm. You, you need that because the Jews had been so ingrained, even though they were often rebellious, uh, they had been so ingrained in their covenant way of living. And there was 400 years of silence Jesus, I mean, lived, you know, just over 30 years. So there wasn't a long time for him to be around either. And so you have the birth of the church shortly after that. Uh, and so uh, his ascension. And so um, you really need something radically to wake people up, to show something supernatural so that the, they will change course, you know, and uh, continue on with where God had been leading them the entire time or else they would have remained, you know, stuck in uh, the old covenant wait, awaiting the Messiah, not realizing he had come. And one thing worth adding to that, there's no gap in chapter 2 with the Jews. There's no gap in chapter 10 with the Gentiles. There's not even a gap in chapter 19 with the disciples of John because they hadn't been baptized into Jesus yet. It was only John's baptism, right? The only gap is with the Samaritans. That's the only one. And that's the only one where Peter wasn't there. And then once he gets there, the Holy Spirit comes. So to me, that really answers that question for us. Um, that's that's another reason why I don't think we are looking for a gap now or even to why we would think the gap is significant. And yeah, like the signs and wonders, because I guess the, a follow-up question would be like, well, why don't we all speak in tongues now? And, yeah, and that's pretty much what Pastor Josh was hitting, that, that this was how God was confirming that, yeah. like, this is all true. Mm-hmm. But there comes a point where we have the whole canon. You have an established church. You don't need that anymore. Yeah, and Hebrews um, is one of my go-to verses for that. Um, there's a couple others, but it says that uh, 
how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared to us at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness, validated, in other words, by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So it was the signs and wonders that helped people to see that these people, when they claimed to speak for God, that they were actually speaking for God. Rather than, um, even though you didn't dress signs and wonders, um, this to me seems to fall into that same category that God's validating that something is different. He's validating his apostles. He's validating his uh, messenger. So that way nobody can just claim to speak for God. And so that's why when somebody says, God told me, give me your signs and wonders. (laughs) Because God needs to bear witness so that I can believe you. And once we've had that established, because signs and wonders were done publicly, they were verifiable. They weren't done in a dark alley somewhere where nobody could verify it. They were publicly done, instantaneous. People were healed. And in Jesus' case, he, he healed everybody. So they were never partial. They were never partial healings. Um, there was one uh, that was gradual, but for a reason. But the rest were instantaneous, complete. There was no going, oh, you know what? I did have cancer, but now I got it again. And none of that stuff, you know, um, or healing of illnesses that couldn't be verified. So all of that was to verify that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, but also to verify his apostles and messengers, too. So anyway. I want to add one thing sort of unrelated, but kind of related, right? Since we're talking about where that theology comes from, right? Uh, Because as, as Pastor Josh was bringing up, some folks will say that God's talking to them or what have you. And, and again, our contention is everything God wants us to know is in the scripture, um, one thing that you want to be wary of, and, and I posted on Facebook recently about this, um, this whole idea that I'm looking to be led by the Spirit, led by the Spirit. A lot of times people act like being led by the Spirit, almost like it's this special magic power of discernment that mm-hmm. they have, that the Holy Spirit gives them. That's not biblical. Not right here's face. your discernment. Yeah. The Word of God. Do you know the phrase, led in the Spirit, only happens three times? You've got to test your opinions by Scripture. Led in the Spirit only happens three times. Jesus being led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. That's to fulfill prophecy. That's, we're not led into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan to fulfill prophecy. The other two times, we're led by the Spirit because we're not under the law. So it means that, that, that we're not under the law, but the Spirit writes the law in our heart. That's what it means to be led by the Spirit. That's just every believer then is led by the Spirit, right? Every believer has the Holy Spirit writing the law of God in the heart. It has nothing to do with, do I take this job? Do I move here? That's not what it's talking about. It's talking about living according to the law being written on your heart by the Holy Spirit, and that law agrees with what's in the Scripture. And then then the second one is we're not of the flesh, okay? But we are led by the Spirit. Being of the flesh means being the unbeliever. Again, you're either the unbeliever or... Or you're the one who's led by the Spirit. So all believers are led by the Spirit in the sense that we're not damned anymore. We've mm-hmm. been saved. Yeah. And that we're not under the law. But the law is written on our heart. That is the only way the scripture uses that. But because of some of this theology that's only 120 years old, people have now got this in their, their vocabulary. And they will do many unbiblical things. And then when you're saying, well, why are you doing that? But I'm being led this way. And then you'll, you'll quote the scripture and they'll say, well, I disagree. The Spirit's leading me this way. But would the Spirit who inspired the Word of God contradict himself by leading you to do something opposite the Word of God? So just what I'm saying is there's a lot of bad theology out there. It finds its way into our minds. 
We always want to test it by scripture. How does the scripture use this concept? Am I using it in a way that's opposite of what scripture does? Well, then I'm misusing it. And so I think in the same vein, that, I think that's a more, like, because, yeah, not a lot of people are going to walk up to you and say, hey, God told me something today. But a lot of people are going to say, I'm being led by the Spirit. And then you kind of watch where they're leaning with it. And sometimes it has very little to do with what the scriptures are saying. So just be wary of that. Let's have a, a biblical vocabulary. Yeah. But thanks for the question. Well, you sort of answered my follow-up question, yes. which was, uh, how do we know or to what passage would you go to to be able to know or tell people that this was back then, right now, once you believe at the moment of conversion, you receive the Holy Spirit? I know uh, uh, Josh mentioned Hebrews. Is there any other passages that talk about that? Yeah, Romans chapter 8, I believe, um, I believe it's like 11 or 12, but... Let me just verify, because pretty much he makes it clear here. If you don't have the Spirit, you're not a Christian. Mm -hmm. um, and so it, it's a prerequisite. Um, so let me just turn there real quick. Okay, so um, Romans chapter 8. Ended up in chapter, chapter. While he's looking for that, I'll just pipe in and say First John 4.2 says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Everyone that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is, is from God. So the fact that you can confess Christ Savior, that means that the, that's because of the Spirit of God indwelling in that person. And that, doesn't, that has nothing to do with baptism or anything like that. It's the fact that this is at your conversion, that you are able to confess Christ. And so you, that's because of the Spirit of God. You have, you have him. Yeah, and, and that's exactly right. And then Romans uh, 8, starting at verse 8, it says, Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. Right? So pretty much you're not saved if you don't have the Holy Spirit. What he's saying, though, is if you do have the Spirit, you're in Christ. And so mm -hmm. that right there settles it. The moment you believe, you have to have the Spirit. Yeah, you can't be saved without the Spirit. Correct. Just like you can't be born again, but I don't believe yet. Yeah. All right, Carlos. So we have two questions. One comes from the little one, and then one is mine. <laughs> so let him know, please. Okay, so he's been a little shy. His question was, why did Jesus on the cross allow the bad people to say bad stuff to him, and he didn't do anything about it? Well, it's certainly because he wasn't cowardly or weak. Uh, go ahead. I think it also fulfills prophecy. You know, he says, the reproach that falls on you falls on me. I, I mean, there's the quote of that psalm. Um, there's also the Isaiah 53 that, um, you know, he was led like a, a lamb before the, the, the slaughter. Um, he didn't speak. He, he was quiet. I mean, so the prophecies anticipated this. Um, and so that would be the most simple answer I would go to. Yeah. And he doesn't have a sin nature where he has to retaliate. Yeah. A secondary reason would be for our example. Yeah. First uh, Peter 2 says, for To this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his footsteps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, talking about him being attacked on the cross, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the, him who judges justly. So one, one of those is, 
I had to practice this a few weeks ago because there was somebody saying ugly things about me at work that were not true. In fact, that person decided to have a conversation with me <laughs> today uh, anyway. But besides that, I remember thinking, you know what? I don't have to vindicate myself. I don't have to validate myself because Jesus left me the example. When he's falsely attacked, I leave it to God who judges justly. And so we're all going to be persecuted for being a follower of Christ. We're all going to have false things labeled against us. Hopefully they are false and not because of our own sinfulness. But when that happens, we follow the example of Christ. And we entrust ourselves to him who judges justly. So that, that's, that's one of the other reasons. So when people say mean things about you, you trust God to take care of the situation. You don't have to defend yourself. That's the simple answer. Or that's one of them. Say thank you. All right. He says thank you. Yes, you're welcome. <laughs> okay, and then uh, the second question is this. Uh, it dealing when you talk to some of our friends who are one is, yeah, one is Pentecostals. They'll typically go to, I believe it's Acts. They'll go to, I believe it's Acts. Let me just get there real quick, sorry. 2.38. Acts 2.38. So they'll, they'll quote this and say, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So essentially what they say is, if, if, uh, if, the, uh, if anybody knew, the apostles knew, and Peter is, his, they'll say, his right-hand man, and so they give us an example to baptize in the name of Jesus. Um, I know that Jesus gave us the formula at the Great Commission to baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and so, but they say those are titles, that's not a name. And so when, when they say that, the question then is, how do you respond to them by saying, number one, uh, yeah, obviously that's what Peter says, but it doesn't necessarily mean that without making a constructive theological argument based on exegesis. Because there it says, baptized in the name of Jesus, what Peter says. Sure. So without using theology, but using just scripture, uh, what do you tell these guys? Yeah, I mean, so here's the thing. They'll say that it's not a name, but it is a name because the Greek text says baptize them in the name. That is the word name. So the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit is being used as a name. Not, what, what did they say, titles? No, I mean, Jesus calls it a name. And then here's the interesting thing, right? You go to Acts 2.38 and we're baptized in the name of Jesus, right? And so what they try to do is equate these. Well, if the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are to be baptized in, but you're baptized in the name of Jesus, thus Jesus is the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But you could bring up probably a dozen scriptures that identify Jesus specifically as the Son. And so, if the first verse, Matthew 28, 18, says baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you can't make Jesus mean all those when all those other verses say that Jesus is only the Son. So Jesus only represents the Son in that formula, not the Father and the Holy Spirit. So, just... Uh... I haven't talked about one is Pentecostals in a long time, but if you're not sure what that is, if nobody caught on, so that way you're not clueless, a oneness Pentecostal, Pentecostal, I believe, is someone who believes there is only one person in the Godhead. And the Father is the Son, is the Spirit, and likewise, um, they are not distinct persons within the Godhead, but it's God wearing a different hat. Like, let me give you an example. I am one person. Uh, I went home for a little while, and I put on the husband hat. Earlier, I was at work, and I put on the work hat. And now I'm at church, and I got the pastor hat on. But I'm the same person. I believe that's what one is Pentecostals mean. And so just to help define that term. And we believe that there is one God who eternally exists in three persons. 
um, and that they all possess the full attribute and uh, nature of God so that there's, there's no difference between them in substance, yet in person they are different. So it is not a contradiction in that they are one in one way, yet three in a different way. They are one in essence, three in person, so that there's no contradiction. We're not saying there's only one person and three persons, and there are three persons, because that's a contradiction. Okay? We're not saying they're one in essence, in essence and then, all, well, they're all different in essence, because that's a contradiction. They're one in one way, in substance, three in person. So that you have the Father, who is God. I'll show you my tattoo later that I have, the Trinitarian tattoo. It has the word God in the middle, and around the side, the Father, the Son, and Spirit in Latin. And it points to the middle. The Father is God. The Son is God. The Spirit is God. And then in between those, it says the Father is not the Spirit. The Spirit is not the Son. The Son is not the Father. So that they are distinct persons, yet one in essence, so that in Christ is the fullness of God. In the Spirit is the fullness of God. In fact, Colossians tells us he's the exact imprint of God. He's the exact icon, the exact image. And um, it's harder to, for me to explain the, the, the deity of the Holy Spirit. In, in, uh, let me rephrase that. One of the illustrations that uh, I use to help explain people the eternal sonship of Christ, his eternal deity, is that phrase, image. Um, it's a little bit more tricky when explaining the spirit. But when you think of yourself in your mind, you have an image. It's, it's a mental image, right? Normally you have pictures on your phone and those are images. But that is not you. That is just a representation of you. And the thought that you have of yourself, because you don't know yourself completely, you can't know your, all your inner organs and every cell in your body. You only have a partial representation of yourself. But God, who existed before all eternity, had an image of himself. And how well would that image be? Total and complete because God is all-knowing. He knows himself so completely and he has this full comprehension of himself, this image. Think for a moment if you could extract that image from God's mind and he's looking at it. What would he see? The complete fullness of God. Where did it come from? From God. How long did it exist? Forever. There was never a time when that didn't exist. And that is who the Son of God is, the image of God. The perfect Son of God in the fullness of God, who God fellowships with, his complete likeness, the one he sent to bring us back to his likeness. And so that's why we say um, that, uh, that the son is generated, eternally generated. There was never a time when the son didn't exist. But he's always been God in fullness and completeness. It's, it, and, uh, you, you mentioned one thing. You wanted a caveat thrown in there about like scripturally, like from the text. Just a few verses prior to that, look at verse, uh, starting with verse 32. God has raised this Jesus. We are all witnesses of this. Therefore, since he has been exalted to the right hand of God and, is, and has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit, he has poured out what you both see and hear. Okay, we're going to do violence to the text if we start to say that's all talking about one uh, person. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, and this is where Psalm, uh, cites from Psalm 10, 110, uh, the Lord declared to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. A couple verses down is when you hear the, uh, Peter say, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus. So it it's, would make that a very um, like schizophrenic conversation. What is this? How are we to make sense of that? The Lord, sits at, you know, the Lord says to my Lord, declare to my Lord. 
Um, that, that's an issue for the Oneness Pentecostal. What do you do with all these instances in which it is evident that um, there is a, a plurality, uh, yet a unity in, within the Godhead? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I appreciate those answers, and I think you guys are right. But I guess I'm trying to get to the question of how they're asking it, because while they're wrong in terms of their monistic or just unipersonal Godhead, when, when they say... Uh, like, if we think about it, the name Father, Son, and Spirit, I mean, Holy Spirit, that's, you know, that's the only name we have to go with. But the name of Jesus is Jesus, at least in his, in his incarnation. I'm just pushing back to see if they would ask this. But if they're saying, well, it doesn't say name. It says Father, Son, and Spirit. Nobody's name is Father, Son, and Spirit. Those are just essentially roles, if you will. So can we say that when Jesus says in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit... Because, like you said, the Father is God, the Son is God. Well, who is this God, and what is his name? Because the three share the name, if that's the case. So where else can we go in Scripture to kind of point to the fact? That, because they're obviously wrong in terms of their understanding, because you're right, Ronnie. I, I think that that's very difficult to answer for them that, well, there's two at least here that we're talking about, yeah. not one. Um, I, I think the Lord's Prayer helps us to see that, too. The, the Lord's Prayer, and then, you know, because I think simultaneity is an important principle that you could show. So at the baptism of Jesus, mm -hmm. you have the Father speaking, the Son being baptized, and the Holy Spirit descending upon him. In the, the martyrdom of Stephen, he looks up, mm -hmm. being filled by the Spirit, he sees the Son at the right hand of the Father. And so, I mean, those would be instances where they are all there at the same time. Like, like at creation. Yeah, and creation would be another example. And so the, the modalistic conception of God or the, the oneness conception that they view, so Ronnie was talking about being an expert on everything 90s. I'm going to bring us to the 80s. If you're a Transformers <laughs> fan, Astro Train was the first triple changer. So he was a shuttle, a robot, and a train. But that was all just one dude. <laughs> you know, you can never have all three at the same time at the same place. Yet in the scripture, we see Father, Son, Holy Spirit multiple times at the same place, yet distinct from each other, yet God. Mm -hmm. And then I would just bring up even the Hebrew. Be like, hey, do you guys know the Hebrew? Elohim, the word for God is plural, mm -hmm. but always associated with singular verbs. Yeah. So, I mean, they're, they're, those hints are just there. God said, let us create man in our image. But then it says God created man in his own image. So is it a his or an our? It's both. Yeah, and Jesus doesn't talk in a way that would lead you to believe he's talking to himself. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. I must go away so that I can send another, not me, incarnated or spiritually reincarnated. And so, um, I mean, either that or Jesus is crazy. You know, so I, I, I don't see any other yeah. way around that. So, so I guess maybe I didn't phrase my question well, because you guys are defending the fact that there is three persons. Yeah. But I guess that's not my question. My question is more so in terms of baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Spirit. The names themselves. It's probably my fault. I didn't clarify. Yeah. So when they say that you baptize in the name of Jesus, Matthew gives us the, the Father, Son, the name of the Father, the name that belongs to the Singular. Father, Son, and the yeah. Spirit. So in that sense, uh, where do we go to Scripture, particularly without doing theological well, hurdles? It, that, that's what I was saying. You find a number of passages that identify Jesus only as the Son. 
because that, that he's never identified as the Father or the Spirit, but he's identified as the Son. And then off that basis alone, you're able to show that the word name is being used differently. Mm. Um, that, that's how they can't be used in an identical sense. If Jesus, the one whose name we're baptized into in Acts 2.38, is only the Son in that formula in Matthew 28. Okay. Thank you, guys. It's a good question, though. All right. Hey. Hey. <laughs> I just no no. Where does it say in my where does it say in the Bible that Jesus was married? The genealogy of Mary. Oh, the genealogy of Mary. Because we recently read Miss Joseph. And so, obviously the Messiah came from King David's bloodline. So he wants to know, is there in the Bible the genealogy of Mary? It never directly says it, but most assume that Luke gives us the genealogy of Mary. The problem is it says son of Joseph, you know. Um, but the, the thing is, when we compare it to Matthew's genealogy, Joseph would have two different dads then. Um, and so what people are assuming is that one of them exhibits what's called a Leverite marriage. And a Leverite marriage is where, um, in, in one respect, if a man only has a daughter, doesn't have any sons, the man who marries that daughter also gets adopted as a son um, and so gets the status of son. And so given that Matthew clearly is the, the royal lineage and royal lineage has to come through a father, that leaves us then with, with Luke having to be the lineage of Mary um, since that one's clearly not the royal one because it's not traced through Solomon. It's from David, but, but not through Solomon. It's through Nathan. And so it, it would seem that even though it mentions Joseph there, it's mentioning him as the adopted son of Mary's dad. Um, but it doesn't directly say that. So again, you're not going to find a passage that directly says this is Mary's genealogy. But for the longest time throughout church history, that's what people have been saying about Luke. And it does make sense. Not necessarily. Because Joseph adopted Jesus, he's got the lineage. He inherits everything that's Joseph's. But I do think it's an extra touch of goodness um, for his claim that he is descended from David through Mary, but he's not descended through the king's line through Mary. Um, so like, let's say Joseph didn't adopt him, but he still had that lineage from Mary. That wouldn't be enough for him to be the Messiah because it's not through Solomon, it's through Nathan. And so, so yeah, the, the messianic lineage had to come through Joseph's adoption of Jesus. But good question. Thank you. Any, anything you guys want to add to that? All right, Luke, he's looking around. <laughs> oh, Frank. Can I just ask a follow-up question on the... the in the name of Jesus and the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Look what Carlos started. Yeah. Yeah. When, when we read in uh, Acts 16, 18, for example, where 
Paul was saying, you know, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of there. It, it kind of uses the name of Jesus as authoritative, right? Yes. So that it's not coming from him. So when, one, it says in the name of Jesus, um, would that also be similar right there? So it's basically both the same, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, because we are doing that by the authority of the Trinity, you know, or by the authority of Jesus, everything that Jesus stood for. So when in, 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 in the gospel, for example, he is saying, hey, you know, baptize them in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and when we then later in Acts read that it says, <clears throat> in the name of Jesus, everything that Jesus taught us, you know, that's what we're going by, by the authority of yeah, I mean, in the name of does mean in the authority of. And, and one thing that I was just thinking that popped in my mind, um, Pastor Josh has brought up a lot about how God has always had, like you've never been able to go to God directly. There's always a mediator, right? Um, so it would have been the law, um, you know, the temple system, prophets, whatever it may be, all pointing to Jesus, right? But if, so think about it. What does Jesus say? He says, we go to him. And he will ask, like we ask anything in his name. And then, you know, the Father will do it. So we go to the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit specifically through the Son. That's why I don't think it's a problem. If it's in the name of, and name of means in the authority of, yeah, it's in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But how do you have access to that broader name of the triune God? It's through the Son. It's through in his name that we ask. And then the Father goes and does these things. And so that's kind of how I would answer that. We are, yeah, uh, eight ten, and so uh, good questions, guys. This was a a good way to, um, yeah. Oh, well, poor. Oh, well, okay, okay. Tell you what, David, you got one more. Real quick before David asks, we want to remind you that next Wednesday we have our all church Christmas party. Yes, everyone's invited, and uh, we're gonna have some fun. There will be some legends made um, <laughs> after this night. There'll be. You want your video uh, cameras out on your phone and your video going for a few things. Oh, yeah. Um, some blackmail. <laughs> I got evidence. <laughs> All right. But uh, so join us for that next week. And then uh, please make plans to be here Christmas morning service. Um, I'll be giving the gospel. We'll keep the sermon abbreviated. But we really want to get at the heart of the gospel for any non-Christian people that you may be bringing. So let's corporately together. Let's use this as a wonderful evangelistic opportunity to exalt our Savior so that people might know Christ. Amen? Amen. All right. Keep Pastor John in prayer. Just another reminder. And then next year, guys, we are, we're going to be running hard next year. Oh, yeah. Sunday night services, the change in Wednesday. We got music lessons. We got uh, some fellowship dinners that we're going to try to use to help people get connected. There's some positive change without overwhelming you. It seems like a lot, but uh, we're going to make incremental steps and uh, we're going to see if god will use any of this to help take us to the next level to see his kingdom grow all right uh, this was one that was asked during a, um grace community church q a so i thought it'd be good to ask here so in regards to christians wherever whatever state they may be in possibly being put into a position where they may have to move out of that state maybe for financial reasons to afford to live somewhere that's easier um, what would you encourage brothers and sisters in this church to do in a step-by-step way if they have to make that decision? Meaning like they, 
pretty yeah, much like, they like, cannot afford to live yeah, here. They it, can't it's afford not to live. because they're, you know, oh, I'm going to the Ponderosa. <laughs> it's that like I've got to. Okay. Well, I think one thing that we've noticed um, that's a pitfall is people pick the place without any thought of fellowship. Um, so, I mean, I, I think if you're going to move somewhere and you have a little bit of a choice of where you're going, you want to at least put some thought into the local churches that are there. Somewhere where you're going to be taken care of, somewhere where your family's going to be fed, you're going to be held accountable, but also somewhere where you can serve and, and you could be a blessing. Because in a sense, this could be from the Lord. You know, he moves his pieces around, his people around to serve in places. So that's going to be one of the reasons he'd be having you move. I think a, a second thing would be you don't just drop this on your current church and your current leaders out of the blue. You let them know that, hey, this is what's happening. We don't want this to happen. We've tried every which way to prevent it, but this is where we're at now. Because then that gets us all involved where we're able to help. We're able to pray. We're even able to maybe call those pastors for them and, and stuff like that. So I think just as long as the, the current church is kept in the process, we're able to help hand them off in a way that is just right. Um, and, and I believe that's what God wants in the early church. If somebody was moving from one city to the next, that church gave them a letter, you know, that went with them, that was authenticated. And, and so it was all like, it wasn't this independence that we have today. Um, and that's what I would think. I don't know if there's anything else that I'm missing. I mean, I would just reiterate what Pastor Steve says. I think a lot of times people um, on their list of priorities when they're considering a move, not too long ago, we, uh, with my family, we were considering one. Thankfully, the uh, Lord opened doors here for us to stay. But um, one of those things that doesn't make it on that list of priorities, unfortunately, even for Christians, is, is the local church, like having a good, solid local church to be a part of. Uh, yes, to be fed, but also to be a, a contributing member of. And, um, you know, we look at the proximity to, like, downtown events or, or, or good quality schools or, uh, you know, no state income tax and things like that. But the priorities, if, if we are um, not merely just citizens of this world, which in, to a lesser effect we are, uh, obviously, but we're citizens of the kingdom of God, our priorities should be that first, you know, look to where we can be of service. Look also to where we, again, what's the best interest of our families. Yeah, and, and um, I know that situation does exist. I would say it probably doesn't exist as much as people make it out to be because we love comfort. We love having things. And so I, I don't want to say anybody's motives are suspect, but it's always good to do a heart check to see if we are seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Um, it says, do not, Scripture says in Matthew 6, 31, do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? Don't be anxious about that. For the Gentiles, meaning those outside of covenant with God, right? That's who it's really referring to. Seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. God knows that you need these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, don't be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. And so it's one thing to say that. It's another thing to live that. It really is easier to seek 
first the kingdom of Josh, and the kingdom of David, and the kingdom of Fernando, the kingdom of Kevin. Put your own kingdom there. It's so much easier to see that because we can see it, and we can experience this tangibility right away. Man, I worked a little more. I got more money to get more stuff or to provide more for my family or to pay those bills that I accrued or to try to pay off the debt that I foolishly got into. I'm not saying all debt is foolish, but you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. And so all of a sudden we think, ah, now, now I can't provide for my family. And a lot of it sometimes is because of bad decisions that we've made. We've not lived within the means that God has uh, given to us. And so I know a lot of people, the more money they make, the more bills they get. And so um, anyway, but saying that that's not the case, um, I would say continue to seek first the kingdom of God and not make that decision in isolation. Um, and if you're truly seeking the kingdom of God, that will be your primary priority in wanting to move because the kingdom of God is first in all things. So um, if you can seek first the kingdom of God, and that's my priority for wanting to move because this will greater advance the kingdom, then yeah, by all means. If it's I can move so that I can take care of my own kingdom, I, I, would, I would question that decision. And so um, if, if God's glory, God's kingdom, the furthering of the church is primary, the kingdom of God, then I have no problem encouraging people to do that, you know? But you don't want to entice, uh, encourage them to fall after their own lusts and their own desires, their own comfort, under the name of spirituality, only to find out that they're worse off after they left because they have no su- spiritual supervision, no spiritual teaching, and uh, they're now they're disconnected because we've seen that a lot. Thank God we've seen people really plugged in after they've moved to other churches. Um, but we have seen probably, I don't know what the ratio is. It feels like more people have faltered away from the Lord because they've moved away, not just from this church, but because they've become disconnected and unaccountable to anyone uh, in the pursuit of a, a better career or a better job. But, um, you know, we've seen a good amount on both sides where people have done well in their transition, and then a lot, though, that have not. I think the majority have not in, in our experience. It, it, it feels like it, and it's a yeah. bummer. It really is. And um, anyway, but that, that's, that's another story to tell another day. Yeah. Thank you guys for being here tonight. Ronnie, would you like to close us in prayer? Sure. Lord God, thank you for um, allowing us to gather this evening and just to um, really seek out answers to the questions that may be um, eating away at us or or just really uh, things that we may be reflecting upon as we try to walk in this this world in a way that is both uh, faithful and um, in line with your will, God. Uh, There's many different things that come up in, in as we progress throughout this, this life, many decisions we have to make, and um, there's things that we come across in Scripture that we may be unclear about even after leaving this, this meeting today, things that are going to come to mind. But Lord, may we ultimately, may we have the confidence in, in just knowing that, um, that we have, that our salvation is sure. That we have an assurance in, in that the, the blood of, of Christ is sufficient. It's sufficient. It covers us and, and cleanses us of all sin. And that uh, if we walk in the power of the, the spirit of, of you, Lord, uh, we, we have nothing to, to fear in this world or uh, 
and if we were to, to doubt at all uh, of anything, um, you know, Lord, first of all, forgive us for any moments in which we have doubted uh, in you, in your faithfulness. Really, it sounds absurd, but we'd, we'd, it'd be more reasonable to doubt our very own existence and reality than it is to doubt you. But Lord God, I pray that all of us that are leaving um, here, we're leaving with an assurity, a, a sure uh, foundation that is constantly built, being uh, built upon every Sunday as we as we plug into just really being um, part of your body here at Sovereign Way. And although this is our last Wednesday service, per, per se, uh, uh, there's going to be continuing work, and if anything, an intensifying of your work here at Sovereign Way on Wednesdays and now even on Sunday evenings. So, Lord God, I just pray for your continued um, provision, guidance, and just your direction ultimately in the coming uh, new year and as we close out this year. We just thank you for all the Wednesday nights we've had up until now and and every one that we'll have from here on out with the special lectures that we have uh, or, or ser- series that are coming and some exciting things and the sen- Sunday evening services that uh, will we'll just allow for others to be able to join us uh, both as, as visitors and those that, that are members and, and regular attendees. I just, just praise you for everything that you have, that you're doing here at Sovereign Way Christian Church. And I pray everyone is able to get to their homes and to, to their, uh, just to their residences and security. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you. So how do you like it, brother? Your identity is Jesus is, it's found in Christ, that we are chosen and not forgotten because of what he has done for us and for who he says that we are. See, when we gather together collectively here, we worship. Hi everyone, Mark Barden here.